Dear fathers, we come before you today. Truly, you, you give us your word and uh, tell us to test everything, uh, to test everything according to your word, which is inerrant, which is truly uh, the guide and path uh, of what we follow in terms of our life in Christ. And today we pray that we will truly be guided by you and your word uh, to understand the prosperity gospel and to understand uh, what is right or wrong about it. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now over the years, uh, I've met many people who've gone to uh, prosperity gospel churches. But what does it mean, uh, this term, the prosperity gospel? Right? When, when you use the term prosperity gospel, what exactly are we talking about? I think primarily, um, if we talk about the prosperity gospel, we're talking about churches which proclaim as their primary message. They might proclaim other things as well. Okay, I want to be uh, nuanced here. I don't want to just you know blanketly blame everybody. But, but it means that primarily, if you become a Christian, one of the main benefits that you will get is to be successful, to be fulfilled, and to be able to achieve your dreams. And by achieving your dreams, I probably mean uh, in terms of being rich or successful or material or relationship terms. Now, if you um, look at... Uh, okay, so I've taken the, the liberty of... Uh, I didn't buy the book, but I took a photograph of the back of the book, at popular bookshop. So this gives you an idea. Okay, I'll be using lots and lots of illustrations up on the on the overhead today. So I hope that you can follow as well. So, oh, no, no, you don't need... Oh, you can see it. Can you see it? Okay, I'm sure you can see it now, right? Okay, so... Um, uh, as you can see, this is uh, uh, the, the back of one of the, the books, and, and you can see it's very much into the ideas of blessing, having your best days, being fulfilled, fulfilled, realizing your dreams, improving your life. Okay, so next one, next slide. So again, having a successful life, success, blessings, uh, success, blessed, good life, living out your dreams. So there is a, a, a very great preoccupation in terms of being a Christian, and having a successful life, being fulfilled, being, uh, uh, I guess, able to achieve your dreams. Now, the question we are asked this morning is uh, whether uh, this gospel is faithful uh, to what God's word has given us. Because obviously, God's word is his sacred word. It is God-breathed, and it's, by, uh, it's the standard by which uh, we test everything. Now, I think uh, there are times where I have spoken to people who come from churches which preach the prosperity gospel, and, and they rightly say to me, one of the first things they say to me is, well, have you ever visited my church before? Have you actually heard the preaching at my church? Or is it all hearsay or what other people have said? You know, it's not very fair for you to comment unless you've actually heard the sermons or gone to the churches. And I think that's a very fair comment. You know, unless you actually heard the teaching firsthand or you've been there, it's not very fair for you to comment. So I think uh, what I would like to do today is, I have visited the churches, I have heard the sermons at various places, and instead of talking in a very abstract, high ivory tower, theological, academic level, I want to look at it from a very, um, I guess, uh, lower ground level uh, experience, where you're actually sitting under the sermons, listening to the preachers, and asking ourselves, okay, what are some of the things that they say? Uh, what are some of the passages of the Bible which are used to justify what they're saying? And to ask if we test it based on the Bible, based on God's word, uh, does it actually hold up to what is being said? And if it is true, then we should, uh, I guess, uh, endorse it. But if it's not true, then we should seek to avoid it at all costs. Now the Bible tells us, uh, next slide, that this is the way that we should always treat uh, all sorts of teaching, right? 
So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. And again in Acts chapter 17, the Bereans were of more noble character than Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And again in Psalm 119 about how God's word is the lamp to our feet and the light onto our path. We follow what the Bible says and we measure everything by what the Bible says. So let's have a look at some of the things that uh, are said in, in these churches which I've heard with my own ears and examine whether the Bible actually endorses these things or whether the Bible, uh, you know, after testing it based on the Bible, we are meant to reject it. Now, the first thing, as you can see uh, from the outline, is the proposition in many prosperity gospel churches that God wants us to be rich because Jesus was rich. Okay, and uh, and, uh, and interestingly enough, I've been to a few prosperity gospel churches over the years, and this is one thing which seems to to come out over and over again. I've heard this more than once in different sermons, in different settings. And I think that the, the logic is quite clear, right? The logic is, if Jesus was rich, then surely God must also want us to be rich. Right? Can you see the logic there? If Jesus was rich, then surely God must want us to be rich too, because we must be like, like Jesus. And uh, one of the passages which seems to come out over and over again, is John chapter 19. Okay, John chapter 19. And they always latch on to how when Jesus was being crucified, uh, Jesus wore an undergarment which was seamless and woven in one piece from top to bottom. Uh, let's not tear it, they say to one another. Let us decide by lot who will get it. Now I've heard preachers say that Jesus was a rich man Jesus must have been a rich man because he wore an undergarment which was seamless. That means, you know, it, it obviously was, was, was like, you know, made in some special way. And, uh, it means that only rich people could wear this sort of undergarment. In fact, I, I heard one of the preachers compare it to like the Armani of underpants. But if we, if we look at the Bible, can we really say that Jesus was a rich man or this passage actually shows that Jesus was a rich man? Well, the first thing that uh, I think we want to say is uh, using Jesus' undergarments to show that he was a rich man is a speculative, uh, you know, idea. It's something that's pure speculation because we have no way to understand from this passage if Jesus was rich just because he was wearing this undergarment. I mean, do we have archaeological evidence to show that, you know, somehow... People who wear one-piece undergarments were, were rich or were poor. Or that this particular brand that Jesus was wearing was a very rich brand of undergarments. Right? I mean, uh, I went to Hong Kong recently for a holiday and I, I, I bought six underpants. And if you look at it, I mean, to me, in my, you know, my, my very, uh, non, 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 non receptive thing, they look very expensive. But I bought six for 550. Right? But looking at clothes, or just the description of clothes, don't tell you whether they are rich in of itself. In fact, generally clothes in the ancient world were all expensive. Right? In the ancient world, you couldn't go to, uh, to Giordano or go to uh, Uniqlo and buy $7 t-shirts. I mean, people just had one set of clothes to wear. So yes, clothes were expensive. 
Oh, is this, is this, shall I use this instead? Uh, clothes were expensive, but was what Jesus wore a mark of wealth and luxury and richness? Now again, now when we come to uh, reading the Bible, uh, the principles of reading the Bible are very, very important. Okay, And I always believe that uh, if God can create the world and God can sustain the world, He can surely communicate to us. And actually in the Bible, especially in uh, when we look here in the Gospels, when God wants us to know that a person is rich or he is wealthy, the Bible lets us know. So if you look up here on some of the slides that I have here, right? Uh, we studied this recently uh, in John chapter 12. We were told that Mary poured expensive perfume on Jesus. We were told that it was worth a year's wages. In Luke chapter 16, we are told of a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Right? It's very clear to us he was rich. And what marked him out as rich was because he wore purple, which was very rare. And he wore fine linen and lived in luxury. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts in the temple treasury. So what Jesus wore that day was not described as rich or fine or luxurious, but he was just wearing a one-piece garment. And in fact, again, if we come to God's word, we ask ourselves, why were we told what Jesus was wearing, that it was a one-piece garment? Well, if you look here in John chapter 19, okay, the principle of Bible reading is so important. Context, context, context. Why was Jesus wearing a one-piece garment? So that it would fulfill the scriptures that they would divide my garments and cast lots for my clothing. See, the reason that we are to understand Jesus wearing a one-piece undergarment was not to say that Jesus was a rich man, but to say that Jesus fulfilled scripture and was humiliated because even his undergarments were taken from him and they gambled for his underclothes. So that when Jesus hung on the cross and suffered for his people, he was absolutely naked. Right? When we think of uh, the picture of Jesus on the cross, we always think of Jesus, you know, very modestly wearing some sort of towel around his private parts, right? But the reality was, if we understand what God's word is saying and we understand what the Romans did to the people they crucified, he would have been perfectly humiliated and all his private parts exposed to everybody. So what are we to understand by Jesus' undergarment? Not that he was rich, but that Jesus was humiliated as part of God's plan and fulfillment of Scripture so that people could be forgiven for their sins. Now the second thing that I've heard in the Prosperity Gospel Churches, if you look up here in the outline if you want to follow, is that God wants to bless us with many good things Today, today is the day of blessing. So once again, if uh, you look up here on the slide, right? Uh, if you look at the back of uh, much of the literature, there is always this emphasis of today, a present reality of blessing. Right? So you, oh, yeah, okay, right. So you know, seize the day. It's your time. Okay, next one. Next slide. Right again. Have, live a successful life today. Uh, start living out the dreams God has birthed in your heart today. 
Okay, and, and obviously the last one, which is the most, right? Your best life now. Now, again, when I uh, visited uh, some churches, they will point to uh, the passage that we read a moment ago, and that's why you need your Bibles. Now, in Luke chapter 14, uh, we read about the parable of the great banquet. And um, when I was uh, at this Prosperity Gospel Church, uh, the, the preacher said this. The preacher talked about the great banquet. And he said, with great emotion, with great effect and great conviction, that what is on the banquet table of God, God is a good God. God wants the best for you. On this table, there will be no poverty. On this table, when you eat, there will be no ill health. There will be the greatest or fair. Right? There will be your wildest dreams all fulfilled. And how can you argue with that, right? Because if God is a good God, surely at this great banquet, God will not give you bad things to eat, right? I mean, there won't be like food which is expired or food which tastes bad. It'll be, it'll be everything that's good on this table, right? Your dreams fulfilled, everything else. And he says that today as we eat this banquet, you will receive all these things. And I remember uh, at uh, one of the particular church services, they even invited people uh, in the middle of the service to stand up. Because if you stand up, you will receive God's blessing from the banquet table today. And that might be for you, a brand new car or a brand new house. Now, how many of us will not want a brand new car, especially the price of the COE, right? How many of you will not want a, a brand new house given to you today? And surely if God is a good God and this table is all spread out for you and God wants to give you the best things in life, then it's all waiting there for you to receive it at this great banquet table. But again, you see, they're not reading the Bible in context. In fact, they are, they are sort of twisting God's word, isn't it? Because look with me, and this was not read to you in the Bible reading, so you need to look at the Bible with me. In Luke chapter 14, verse 12 to 14, which is, which is the context in which the parable is preached. So look at the context in which the parable is preached. In chapter 14 of Luke, verse 12, why does Jesus tell us this parable? So in verse 12, Jesus said to his host, um, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And in verse 15, I'm not sure that I put verse 15 up there. Yes, I did. When one of those at the table with him heard him say this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who, what's the tense there? Who will eat at the feast, at the kingdom of God. You see, the, the, the great banquet is often described as the, the heavenly banquet. It is not the banquet that we eat today, now, the banquet in which we eat where we will never get sick again, we will realize all our dreams, we will get rich. It is the banquet which is representative of all the great blessings of heaven. So what's happening is, 
the, the, the prosperity gospel takes the promises of the future and telescopes it back into the present so that it's trying to get you the promises which should only be realized far, far into the future in heaven and say to you that you should have it today. Indeed, God is a good God. God wants to give you the best things and you will receive all the best things. But you will receive the best things when Jesus comes again and takes us to heaven. Not today in terms of not ever being sick or being rich or being successful or being fulfilled. Now, I'm not sure whether I put this up here, but this is where I want to teach you to flip the Bible to see something very similar. Turn with me, for those of you who have your Bibles or your iPads or your iPhones, to Matthew chapter 22. Okay, chapter, Matthew chapter 22. And again, uh, this is part of the Bible reading principles that we follow. If we're not sure about a parable that Jesus speaks of, it's often helpful to go to another part of the gospel to see where Jesus gives the same parable and to see what the tense of the parable is. Is it in the future or is it in the present? So in the parable of uh, Matthew chapter 22, it is also the parable of the wedding banquet. And I'm going to take my time to read it. And I want you to to see for yourself that it is not the present, but the future that's in view, isn't it? So I'll read it for you from verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not come, did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if you look in the book of Matthew, over and over again, this phrase, uh, darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, always represents uh, hell, the picture of final judgment. So as we look at uh, the parable of the wedding banquet, we see that the, the context is not being thrown out into the literal darkness or having literal weeping and gnashing of teeth, but it's talking about the future where when people fail to get into the kingdom of heaven, they're actually weeping and gnashing in hell with great regret. So I think that there is no such thing in terms of taking the promises of the future heavenly banquet and applying it to ourselves today. The major flaw is to read from the future into the present and mistaking the promises of heaven for the promises of today. See, it's a wicked thing, I think, to to give the impression that God is promising things that He never intended to give you. Now, I think it's really, really sad because I know of some people who go to these prosperity gospel churches 
And over time, they instead of having their hopes and their dreams uh, realized and uh, uh, having fulfillment, they actually become very disillusioned because they don't receive the, the prosperity and the fulfillment that they believe that God owes them, that God should be giving them. Uh, some of you know my sister, right? You know my sister, the one who has some physical uh, handicap? She shared with me before how she has been to some of these prosperity gospel churches. And she, she too has been badly hurt. Because year after year, going to these churches, there is the expectation that I deserve it, you know. If you, if you go to the prosperity gospel church, they're saying you deserve it, you just have to ask for it. God wants to give it to you. But year after year, if you go and you don't get your dreams fulfilled, then, then what does it mean? It means that, one, God doesn't really exist, so He cannot give you what He has promised, or He fails to have the power to. Or two, you don't have enough faith. And both of those things are terribly corrosive to someone's Christian walk, isn't it? Because you're saying that God is not powerful enough. Or I have no faith. And that's a very, very bad thing to do. Because you've actually misrepresented God. And you've, you've, you've told people that God is promising to do things for you that actually He's only promised to do uh, in the future when Jesus returns. Now the third thing, as you can see again from the outline, that uh, I've, I've, I've heard uh, over and over again, listening to the sermons, uh, going to some of these churches, visiting, is that as a Christian, you should not expect suffering. Right? As a Christian, you shouldn't expect suffering. You shouldn't expect to, to, to feel, to have bad things happen to you after you become a Christian. And I think the logic is very clear, isn't it? Because if I'm already at the banquet table, eating all the good things that God has prepared for me, then surely at this banquet table that God has prepared for me, there cannot be bad things for me, right? Surely at God's banquet table, I cannot be eating things and getting a stomachache, right? Because God God will not allow that to happen. There are only good things waiting for me as a Christian. Not bad things. Not things which cause me pain and suffering. One of the ways that uh, I I, uh, I read again in the uh, when I was listening to the sermons, again, come back to Luke chapter 14, right? So when we, when we went back to Luke chapter 14, which was read to us again by Caris, it says very clearly at the end of uh, Luke chapter 14, in verse 25, to the end of the chapter, that there is a cost in following Jesus. In fact, the clearest cost comes in verse 27. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Right, let me read that again. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now that seems to be, uh, if you look up here on the slide, alright, is that the next slide? No, nothing, huh? Okay, oh, okay, don't worry about that, okay. So, that seems to be uh, in contradiction to the idea of the blessed life, isn't it? Because, wow, carrying the cross it's really heavy, it's really difficult, and it's really painful. Right? If, if you've ever seen 
like uh, you know, sometimes you see pictures of these pilgrims and they're carrying these heavy crosses on their shoulder. It looks like like real suffering. And I think that's the picture that Jesus is trying to show that that you know, if you follow me, there will be costs involved. In fact, later on in chapter 14, he says the same thing. Unless you give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. Now, the preacher at the Prosperity Gospel Church uh, took a very unusual tact to this. He said, oh, you know, if you look back to uh, uh, chapter 14, verse 25 again, look, look carefully with me what he says. He says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And uh, he made a, a big show of uh, using the Greek word for large crowd, which is uh, poloi, okloi. Large clouds, crowds were following Jesus. And, and, and he said, well, this Greek word, large crowd, is not referring to the followers of Jesus, but to the Pharisees, to the, to the scribes, to the, to the unbelievers. And he basically said that this chapter, at the, at the end of, uh, of, uh, chapter 14, does not apply to Christians. Right? And therefore, for Christians, there is no cross to carry. There is no suffering. Now, I find this to be very, very uncomfortable, right? Because you cannot read the Bible that way. Right? You cannot read the Bible that way. Oh, anyway, I, I left my... This is, I've got this really big... Oh, there it is. Maybe, Andrew, you bring me that Bible. The one, the blue one. Yeah. Okay, okay so I, I want to impress you. So, so here is my interlinear New Testament. Okay, imagine this is just a New Testament with Greek... And English. Okay, so now, now if I look at it, yeah, I see, well, the Greek word is the same word. But knowing Greek doesn't give you a secret knowledge into the Bible. I can't use a Greek word and say, well, I know the Greek word. I can see things that you all can't see, you know. I'm able to access secret knowledge that you all have no access to. Because the word is literally large crowds. And large crowds it's not a code word for, for meaning Pharisees and scribes. Large crowds are large crowds. And large crowds of people are made up of many different sorts of people. Right? Again, I, I question sometimes how people read the Bible, right? Because if God can create the world, can sustain the world, He can raise Jesus from the dead, He is able to make things clear to us. If God wants to mean Pharisees and scribes, He will say Pharisees and scribes. If God says large crowds, he means people, many people. Pharisees, scribes, some people coming to check out Jesus for the first time, the disciples, some people who've been following Jesus for a long time. And what it literally means here is that it is a challenge. Jesus is challenging everybody that if they want to follow him, they have to carry their cross and give up everything. There will be suffering involved. In fact, the end of uh, chapter 14, verse uh, 35, tells us who the large crowds are representative of. Whoever ears, let him hear. So the large crowds are basically made out of people with ears. right? These are That's the characteristic of the large crowd, people with ears who can hear. So what Jesus is really saying here is that the Christian life cannot be characterized as sufferingless, as a bit of roses, as everything smooth sailing. 
I remember someone in our church uh, was uh, went to to Prosperity Gospel Church before and said that one of the things that they noticed was at the funeral of one of his relatives or her relatives, how people who came from the Bible study from the Prosperity Gospel Church came to the the funeral and found it very difficult to reconcile the suffering of the person who died to what they hear at church. You know, you have cancer for many years, you struggle. If you believe in the prosperity gospel, how can that be true? How can you suffer this way as a Christian if God only wants you to live your best life now? You see, it's incompatible. In fact, I hope that uh, many of you went to the Project Timothy talks last week, right? I hope, because I mean, I've been trying to encourage you all to go, right? Because I think it was really, really helpful. And uh, it was uh, taught by David Koch on the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is about the early church, right? It's about the early church. And actually, David Koch made a really good point in one of the sermons that I heard. He said, you know, there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Out of 28 chapters, 9 chapters describe the suffering of the early church. Right? That's one third of the book of Acts is about suffering. And in fact, in the Acts chapter 14, if you look up here, this is the way uh, Paul uh, describes, oh sorry, uh, this is the way the disciples described uh, how the Christian life was experienced in the real church. They preached the good news in that city and warned a large number of disciples, and then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. See, this is not a sufferingless Christianity. The reality of the church in the Bible, in the early church, was familiar with suffering. It was a church which suffered. Again, another thing that uh, the prosperity gospel seems to talk about is how being a Christian has very little to do with repentance. Right? Okay, again, a lot of prosperity gospel churches downplay repentance because repentance is hard and difficult and the prosperity gospel doesn't sort of talk about repentance in that way. So in Luke chapter 15, which is just the chapter after Luke 14, if you turn to me, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's a very basic story and I'm sure most of you who are Christians are aware of it. If you're not aware of it, I'd like to encourage you to read Luke chapter 15. But it's about... Three parables, right? It's very straightforward. Uh, it's the same thing over and over again. So it's about the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son. Okay, you can see it from the titles in your Bible, right? And um, the preacher was going on and on about how actually in the Bible there is no repentance. There is no repentance at all. There is no such thing as repentance in the Bible because if you look up here in the slide, and, okay, yeah, the, the lost, uh, I'll go back again. The, the, the sheep, cannot repent. The sheep is lost, wandering around. The sheep never turns around. The, the, the shepherd has to carry the sheep on his shoulders. Ah, yeah, how can the coin repent, right? The coin is just lying there, lost. It's the woman who's sweeping away who finally finds the coin. So, no repentance in the Bible. You don't have to repent at all. Just allow Jesus to accept you as you are and, uh, and save you. But I think that the, you know, I, I prayed about this this uh this part quite a bit because I thought did the did the preacher deliberately miss 
the last and the biggest parable. Because the three parables are all in one chapter next to each other for a reason, because they, they, they develop the same theme. Right? So, so did the preacher deliberately leave out the most important parable, which is the parable of the lost son? Because in the parable of the lost son, next slide, there is a very clear picture of repentance. The lost son runs away from his father, takes all the riches, lives a life of sin and rebellion. And then, he's filled the rem- oh, you're too fast. Huh? Okay. He's, he's filled the remorse and, 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 and great awareness of the mistake he's made. And then he goes back to the father. And then going back to the father, the father then is able to, to save him. So the last picture, the last parable is a very clear example of repentance. And what, what the, the prosperity gospel preacher did was he deliberately omitted the last parable in order to make his point. Now that's a really, really dangerous thing to do, don't you think? When you deliberately miss out something because it doesn't agree with what you're trying to say, then you're distorting God's word. You're, you're sort of like using a, your own scissors and cutting out the last part of, of chapter 15. You're mutilating God's word. It's very dangerous because you're basically saying something which, which is very different from God. You're putting different words into God's mouth and you're not allowing the Bible to speak for itself. Now I think the, the, the next part, which is, bear me a bit, the last one, uh, the four, nearly the second last one, is that God wants to prosper you. Okay, This is the one which is often used uh, to talk about how God really wants you to be rich. Because the idea of prosper is the idea of prosperity, right? God really, really wants to prosper you. Again, we talked about uh, how the prosperity gospel reads the Bible, and you can see there's a common theme here, right? They take the promises of the future and telescope it into the present. And again, they take the promises of the past and again, they telescope it into the present. So they, they, they have no sense of context, both in a literary sense and a historical sense. Because when God had said to his people, I plans to prosper you and to give you a hope in the future, what were those plans to prosper them? Not a new car and not a new house, right? But if you look at the context of Jeremiah 29, next one, he says that I plans to prosper you because they had been in exile for 70 years. And after 70 years, God's promised exile and punishment had come to an end and he's going to bring them back out of captivity into the land. And into the land, he would then prosper them. I mean, that's logical, right? I mean, you can't expect God to say, I'm going to bring you back out of exile to bring you back to the land to make you suffer some more. They've already finished their 70 years of exile. Now, the fundamental problem for us is, how do we understand this passage? Next slide. Because we, we are not Israelites who read Jeremiah sitting by the rivers of Babylon, looking forward to going back to Jerusalem, right? We haven't been in exile, right? I mean, have we been in exile? I don't think so, right? Maybe we're separated from Malaysia. Right, we've got to go back to the promised land of KL or something. I don't know. But surely we must read it differently now that we're Christians, right? There must be a right context. There must be a historical context to what we're reading it. So the next slide, 
So this was the original audience, the Jews by the rivers of Babylon. And we're here, we're Christians in Singapore. But the crucial thing is we've, we've, we've gone through the cross, isn't it? Yes, God wants to prosper us and he has promised to prosper us through what Jesus has done on the cross to bring us to heaven. Not necessarily to give us prosperity in that way. Now last week, I hope again, you, 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 you came for the open doors uh, sharing. You no, know, we had these missionaries who came between 11 to 11.30 here at our church. And they're from Open Doors Ministry and they, for many years, have served persecuted Christians around the world. And they were saying how, they shared the story, uh, we watched it, I think, of uh, this North Korean who was sentenced to 10 to 15 years hard labor in the labor camp. Not because he owned the Bible, but because he had copied down a few verses in the Bible. And when they searched his house, they found those few verses. Now, you can't say to that North Korean, right? Actually, if you become a Christian, God will prosper you. Right? Because as we saw in the video, he was taken from his home. He was separated from his wife, separated from his child. They all went their separate ways to different labor camps. He escaped. He doesn't even know whether they're still alive. So you cannot make those promises that God will prosper you when you become a Christian. Now, the last point I want to make is actually opposite to what I've been looking at already, which is there are many things that I didn't hear when I visited the Prosperity Gospel Churches. And I think the things that I didn't hear, uh, I guess in the same way, worried me as greatly as the things that I did hear. You know, the Bible tells us many things about money and about riches. But I never heard any of these verses being preached or even read in these prosperity gospel churches. The first set is about how greed and the love of money is a very, very dangerous thing. That it can actually destroy your faith. I never read about how people who want to get rich fall into a temptation and trap and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men to ruin and destruction. I never read about how uh, uh, the, the seed that fell among the thorns, the third soil, uh, are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures. Again, I never heard the, the next set of how money itself can become an idol. Right? That, that you have to make a choice. You cannot serve both God and money. That actually greed is, is a form of idolatry. I never heard that any of that. And I think also the problem is that because you keep hearing about how God wants you to be fulfilled, He wants you to be rich, He wants you to be blessed, it's all about me, right? It's really interesting, I, I, I did this exercise. If you look uh, at some of the back here, it's all about who? About you, isn't it? Right. God wants to bless you. God wants you to be fulfilled. God wants you to realize your dreams. It's all about you. In fact, the other one has a lot more use. Right. It's all about you. Push you forward. You can overcome. You can do all these things. I think that there are passages in the Bible which says God wants us to be rich. But the funny thing is, it's never about you. He wants us to be rich so that we can be generous to other people. Right? It's all about other people. It's not about you. It's about other people, right? So, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it says, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be fulfilled. No, it says you can be 
rich in every way so you can be generous in every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. See, now that this is you-centeredness. Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says, right, for those who are rich, continue to do good, to be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. And this way, lay up treasure for yourselves in the coming age. See, in conclusion, I think if we weigh up the prosperity gospel based on what the Bible says, we find that in so many areas, it is actually unbiblical. It is actually a false gospel. It is actually not a gospel in the Bible at all. It's a gospel based on man's wishes and wants. You know, unfortunately, I know of somebody who uh, used to be in a in a good Bible teaching church, but today has gone to Prosperity Gospel Church. And, and I remember talking to his wife, and I said, oh, does your husband read the Bible very much nowadays? Oh, no, no, I had the wrong question, sorry. What's your Bible doing? Uh, she said, I'm really happy, you know, because my, my, my husband is really reading a lot nowadays, and he never read before. He used to just play computer games. Right? And uh, he says, yeah, yeah, I'm really husp- happy because he's reading a lot. And I said, what does he read? And he said, well, you know, what, what book of the Bible is he reading? He said, well, he's not really reading the Bible. He reads a lot of books about the prosperity gospel. And I think that's, there's a reason to that because if you, if you read the Bible, uh, just for your quiet time, you'll find it very hard to justify the prosperity gospel. But if you read books about the prosperity gospel, you'll find lots of things which really, really are very stimulating. But really, when you read God's Word, there isn't such a thing as the prosperity gospel as we understand it today in terms of fulfillment and riches, living out your dreams. You know, if you actually study church history, and I would like to encourage you to read any books on church history, actually it's very helpful to read church history, right? Because all things come around and go around. You you realize that actually the prosperity gospel is a modern day phenomena. It's a modern day phenomena. In 2,000 years of church history, the prosperity gospel as we understand it today is, is not really manifested in the same way in the past. And I think the prosperity gospel today is around because it taps into our modern society. The idea of fulfillment. The idea of living out your dreams. The idea of consumerism. I want to end with this uh, very interesting illustration. A relative of mine... Uh, recently went to Brisbane, to the Gold Coast. He didn't go there for a holiday. He didn't go to lie on the beach, but he went to listen to this man. Can, you go, can, you, can we have a look at that, uh, young kid? Do you know who this guy is? Okay, don't, don't, if you know who it is, don't, 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 don't tell your neighbor. All right. Okay, so next slide. Okay, next one. Now you, you look at all these pictures, and you'd be, you'd be correct in sort of uh, saying he looks very much like a prosperity gospel preacher, right? It looks like he's in the church, don't you think? It looks like, if you've ever been to a prosperity gospel church service, it looks like this. But my relative didn't go all the way to, to Brisbane to go to church to listen to a preacher. But he went to listen to, next slide, uh, to Anthony Robbins, right? Uh, I, I don't know whether many of you know Anthony Robbins. Actually, you should, actually. If you've traveled to MRT, I saw his... Advertisement MRT as well, right? Okay. Anthony Robbins is the foremost, one of the foremost motivational speakers in the world. 
Now it's very interesting, right? Because when you look at the blurb of Anthony Robbins, what he has at the back of his book, okay, next slide. I want you to notice how similar it is to what is written to the back of the Prosperity Gospel book. If you've ever dreamed of a better life, unlimited power will show you how to achieve the extraordinary quality of life you deserve. Oh, sorry, wrong. You desire and deserve. And how to master your personal and professional life. Anthony Robbins has proven to millions through his books, tapes and seminars that by harnessing the power of the mind, you can do, have, achieve and create anything you want for your life. It will give you the knowledge and the courage to remake yourself and your world. Unlimited Power is the guidebook to superior performance in the age of success. Okay, so anyway, we're going to be selling some Anthony Robbins downstairs later. You're going to buy it? Because it sounds very impressive, right? But don't you think it has a very similar ring? You can, what you desire is what you deserve. You can, you're going to get it as long as you just do this. It's very similar. And I think that in the end, I'll just like to end by saying that the prosperity gospel, I think, is very much a motivational talk just wrapped up in the language of the Bible. Right? And I think that's really sad because as I was reading this book, which I'm going to do a book review later uh, next few months uh, at church and recommend it to you, the church was meant to go out and evangelize the world, right? Uh, the church is meant to go out into the world to bring the gospel into the world so that people will be saved and to transform the values and outlook of the world. But this commentator made a very good point. He said, actually, the world has done the opposite to the church. The world has come into the church and has managed to evangelize the church. Evangelize the church to the world's values and to the world's outlook. And I think that's what the prosperity gospel is. It is the world who has come and successfully evangelized the church to the world's values and to the world's outlook. Because I don't think it actually comes from the Bible at all. Right? It is actually a reflection of the world, but is using the language of the Bible. And I think that I would like to warn you that if you follow the prosperity gospel or believe in it in some way, or you have friends who do so, I would sincerely, out of love, ask you to warn them. Because I think if you follow the prosperity gospel, uh, you, you know, at some point in time you've lost salvation and you will not be saved. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to, to pray that we will use your word as the sole lamp and light to our feet. That we will test everything rather than naively accept it. Just because it is used in the language of the Bible and is prefaced by Jesus and Amen. Dear Father, we just pray that you give us wisdom to be shrewd in this world, to know that indeed uh, there are many things which uh, will lead us astray and lead us to great harm and destruction. We pray for ourselves and we pray for other people that we will have the ability to warn other people too if indeed uh, they are being led astray in this way. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.